Today's scripture comes to us from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and 14 through 17. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you join me now in prayer? Let's ask for the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you so much for your mercies. We thank you for how you are so faithful. Even when we find ourselves unfaithful to you, unfaithful to those around us, Lord, you do not relent. You do not relinquish your commitment for your people to become blessings to this world and the people who live in it. And Father, we thank you for your unending faithfulness, your, your devout commitment for your people to become the very people that you have called them to be, so much so that you came at great cost into being our Savior. And so, Lord, we ask now that as we prepare to hear your word, that you would bless us, that you would humble us and teach us in your ways so that we could be equipped and enabled to do every good work for the glory of your name, for the good of our family, for the good of this church, for the good of this city, for the good of this world. Oh God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so last week we just started a new sermon series entitled Views of a Healthy church. And the whole point of this series is to ask ourselves the question, how would a healthy church view a certain crucial matter when it comes to the Christian faith? We want to ask ourselves, how would a healthy church, a strong church, view the crucial core matters that pertain to Christianity? Okay? You see, one of the things that you may not be aware of is that every church that is on this earth even though they may agree what the crucial matters or the core issues are when it comes to the Christian faith, there is not agreement in regards to what those views are. And in many cases, one of the ways that determines how certain churches view some of these crucial matters to the faith is largely determined by how healthy they are. Okay? And if you think about it, this makes total sense when you look at some of the other categories of life. For example, if you have a healthy relationship with your spouse, you're going to have a certain view of marriage that will be different to a person who has an unhealthy relationship with their spouse. If a person has a healthy body, they are going to have a certain view of food that will be very different to a person who has a very unhealthy body, right? If you have a person who has healthy study habits, they're going to have a very different view of education and school that is very different to someone who has unhealthy study habits. Am I right? 
Life teaches us that your views of life is largely determined by how healthy you are. And the underlying assumption is, is that the more healthier you are, the more correct your views are. And so that is what we want to ask ourselves. Given the very crucial matters that pertain to Christianity, how would a healthy church view those matters? And the assumption that the healthy view is the correct view. And so last week we kicked off at the series looking at how a healthy church would view Jesus Christ. Jesus himself. And today, we're going to take a look at how a healthy church would view the Bible. Now, for the sake of full disclosure, I just want to let you know that today's message is actually a message I preached on before to you. This is a repeat message. And the reason why is because when I first preached this message about three years ago, I was itching, really itching for another opportunity to re-preach it to you. Why? Because this issue that we're going to be talking about, this matter of the Bible is out of all the matters that pertain to the Christian faith, this is the one topic that is constantly under attack, that is most disagreed upon upon churches everywhere, that has the most variation with regard to viewing in the various churches that are out there. Now, some of you are hearing that, and you might be shocked to hear, to hear that because you've always assumed, wait a minute, don't churches everywhere pretty much have universal consensus with how they view the Bible? Don't all churches everywhere at all times and all places have the exact same view of the Bible, namely that it's the Word of God, it's the authoritative source of the Bible? Well, to keep this shock going, the answer is no. It does not. Churches everywhere do not have the same view when it comes to the Bible. In fact, according to one Bible scholar's, Uh, He identifies six variety of views when it comes to the Bible. First, there's the rationalistic liberal view. And this is the view that says that the Bible is like any other religious book. And in order to benefit from it, you have to filter out all that ridiculous, superstitious, culturally backward stuff in order to extrapolate all the stuff that's still morally viable and still good for people today, right? That's the rationalistic view. Then there is the mysticism view, which sees the Bible as some sort of weird Bible code that you have to try and decipher and decode with kind of quirky and creative and unique insights that people have, these hidden knowledges that people have in order to get the core essence of what the Bible really teaches. And then you have the Roman Catholic view. And this is the view that says that the Bible is only authoritative when it's properly interpreted through the interpretation of one man by the name of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. Right? It is only his understanding of Scripture, it is only his interpretation of the Bible that is the correct understanding of the Bible. And then you have the cult view of the Bible. And this is the view that says, yes, the Bible may be authoritative, but it's not completely authoritative. You need supplemental authoritative literature to make sure that you get the fullness of what God teaches in this world, maybe like the Book of Mormon, maybe the Keys to Unlock Scripture written by Mary Baker Eddy, who is the founder of the Christian Science Movement. And then you have the postmodern view. And the postmodern view is the most pervasive view today, especially amongst young people. And this is the view that denies that there is any authoritative, objective interpretation of the Bible, that everyone's interpretation is biased and subjective, and therefore the only view that's authoritative for you is the one that corresponds to your understanding of life, that corresponds to your opinions, that corresponds to your experiences of life, right? And then finally, you have the orthodox view or the evangelical view, and this is the view that basically says that the Bible and the Bible alone is the only authoritative source for the church and therefore for the Christian. And what makes this view so different from the ones that I just mentioned earlier 
is that this view says you don't need anything else in addition to Scripture in order to properly understand what God teaches. You don't need your reasoning. You don't need your creative interpretations. You don't need the interpretations of one person in Rome. You don't need kind of your own experiences that will validate what the Bible teaches. No, the only thing you need in order to be properly guided and to properly living the Christian life is the Bible and the Bible alone. You see, one of the things that you have to understand is that the Bible has many things to say, including itself. And one of the things that Scripture clearly teaches is that the Bible is the authoritative and the only authoritative source for the church today in the New Testament era. This is why here at NCF, this is the view that we firmly believe. This is the view to which we believe that the Bible is the core source of understanding and authority for the church and for the people of the church. And to explore this, we're going to take a look at the classic text that talks about this very issue, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as we do, we're going to see three things as it pertains to the Word of God, God's Word, the Bible. And here they are. Number one, the need for God's Word. Number two, the content of God's word. And then finally, number three, the uniqueness of God's word. The need for God's word, the content of God's word, and finally, the uniqueness of God's word. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the need for God's word. So you might have heard this story before, but when I was in first grade, I got teased a lot. I got made fun of, particularly by these three kids in my first grade. Right? And they would say such vicious, cruel things to me about how slanty my eyes were or how big my head was compared to the ratio of my body. And they would just say horrific things to me all the time to the point where one day I just got so fed up that I was crying to my first grade teacher, Mrs. Goldstein. I was like, Mrs. Goldstein, these boys keep bothering me. I just can't deal with it anymore. And she just looked at me and with her very coffee breath <laughs> scented mouth said these words to me, John If those mean boys talk to you like that, all you need to say is this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me, right? So next day, sure enough, these same three boys start teasing me, and I say to them, look, sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words, they won't hurt me, right? They weren't ready to hear that. They were just looking at me all, like, inquisitive and puzzled. And then they looked at each other, and then after thinking for about maybe 10 seconds, they proceeded to beat me up, um, ganging up on me. Now, the reason why I tell you this story is not to relive a traumatic moment in my childhood, but simply to point out the fact that even at a young age, we are taught to put not much faith in the power and influence of words. I mean, even in our own culture today, we still have these cultural euphemisms, euphemisms, do we not, that seems to communicate that words in and of itself have no real authority, no real power over us. For example, we say things like, yo, talk is cheap. Or put your money where your mouth is. Or you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Over and over in our society, we are being taught, even so when we are young, that words, words, they're not that powerful. They're not that authoritative. And so we develop kind of a skepticism when it comes to the significance of words. And this skepticism of words has also been applied to even God's own words, which according to Paul is the Bible itself. In fact, there's still a long ongoing debate amongst biblical scholars and theologians about the trustworthiness of scripture, which is simply another way of saying that the Bible in and of itself, maybe it's not as authoritative as 
people have thought it was in the past. Because especially when you look at the history of our society, if you look at history of Western culture, people have seen the atrocities of when people take the Bible too seriously. You've heard stories where people say, man, the Bible is responsible for all these crazy wars. The Bible condones such horrific things like slavery and, and, and polygamy. And so there's this growing negative skepticism that people have, even within the church world, that says that the Bible shouldn't be seen as authoritative as the Bible claims itself it should be, right? And so far, people will, go, people will even go so far as to say, like, you know, the Bible should have no influence in society. It should have no influence whatsoever when it comes to public policy. It should have no place in the public square because if it does, society is going to fall apart. It's going to become bad. You know, people are going to be more narrow-minded. They're going to be so discriminatory. They're going to be so vicious towards one another. So let's not let the Bible have any authority in our society. But here in our passage, Paul disagrees with that. In fact, he says the complete opposite. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 1 of our passage. Can we have our passage up there? He says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now the phrase that I want you to focus on for just a moment is that last one in verse 5, having the form of godliness but denying its power. Here's the context. Paul is specifically referring to a bunch of false teachers that came into the church that he started in Corinth, and these false teachers were leading his church people astray with false teaching. And why did they do that? Because on the surface, these false leaders looked legitimate. They looked like very godly men, very righteous people, right? And yet Paul says inwardly they were far from it, right? He says they had a form of godliness, but they were not genuinely godly. Why? Because, according to Paul, they denied its power. Now, when he says power, he's not specifically referring to the power of godliness. Specifically, he's talking about the power of God's word. In fact, Paul goes on to tell us that a person is ungodly precisely because they have no confidence. They have no faith in the power of the Word of God, in the authority of Scripture. Tom Constable, who is a Bible scholar down in Dallas, puts it this way. He writes this, quote, These people, these false teachers, would make a pretense of being religious but deny the source of true spiritual power, i.e. God's Word. Now, the point Paul is trying to make here is simply this. When you deny the power of God's Word, When you have no confidence, no faith in the authority of Scripture, you are in danger, okay? You are in huge danger because according to Paul, when the power of God's word is denied, the world becomes a literal hell on earth because it's made up of people who have no faith in the power of God's word that causes them to become like people in verses 2 to 4. Lovers of themselves, abusive, unholy, brutal, slanderous, treacherous, without self-control, conceited, and lovers of pleasure. You know, it's funny, every time I read this passage of scripture and I come across phrases like, in the last days, and it talks about all these different kinds of characters that come out in the last days, lovers of pleasure, conceited, and so forth, it it, kind of reminds me of the movie that I saw many, many years ago that many of you might have seen or maybe not have seen. It's called The Book of Eli. Anyone here seen The Book of Eli, right? 
If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil the movie for you. But that movie's been out for quite a long time, so it's really your fault, not mine. Okay, so basically the book of Eli is set in the future. It's kind of like set in a post-apocalyptic scenario. There's kind of hints that some war happened, and, and now the whole world is desolate. You know, there are highways filled with empty cars. There are cities that are basically abandoned, filled with, like, empty city buildings. And society has basically crumbled to the point where people have, 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 have denatured themselves in such a way that they resorted to eating each other. I mean, the world is really bad. And then you have the main character of the movie, Eli, played by Denzel Washington. He's a nomad, but he's a nomad with a mission because he is carrying a book in his backpack that he needs to take out west. And this is the spoiler part. The book that he's carrying is the only remaining copy of the Holy Bible on earth. This is the only surviving book of the Bible in all the earth. And he's trying to take it out west. Now, of course, with every movie, there is a villain. And this villain is Carnegie. And what does Carnegie want? Sure enough, he wants the book that Eli is carrying. To the point where he's willing to kill people for it torture people for him. He's doing all that he can to get his hands on this Bible. At one point in the movie, he asked the villain straight up, why do you want this book so much? Is that coming from outside? Sorry about that, folks. Why am I apologizing? It's not me doing it. (laughs) Please don't tell me it's my car doing that. All right, we'll close the door. Sorry about that, folks. Let me try and... So basically, Eli confronts the villain. He says, why do you want this book so much? What is it about this book that is so significant to you? And this is what Carnegie says in the movie. Can we have this quote up, please? There it is. Okay. This is what the villain says. He says, I grew up with it. I know its power. If you read it, then so do you. That's why they burned them all after the war. Now imagine, imagine how different and righteous this world could be if we had the right words for our faith. People would truly understand why they're here, why they're doing it. They wouldn't need any other uglier motivations. What I find so interesting is that you have a villain in a Hollywood movie that's saying the exact same thing that Paul is saying in our scripture for today. Paul is essentially saying what this villain is saying is that the Bible is capable of doing things that philosophy can't do, science can't do, technology can't do, that money can't do, that education can't do. The Bible and the Bible alone is capable of making this world better than what it could ever be on its own. It could bring healing to devastation. It can renew things that have been broken. It can bring healing to those that are sick. The Bible is capable of bringing hope and renewal to a broken world. Now, some of you are thinking this, and you're just like, come on, pastor. That's such an outlandish statement to make. How can you say that the Bible is capable of such transformation? I mean, what's so special about the Bible itself to where it can do, to where even technology and science and money can't do? That is a pretty profound statement. How are you going to back that up? Let me back it up by going to my next point, the content of the Word of God. Starting in verse 16 of our passage, 
it reads this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here, Paul shows us what the power of God's word is all about, and it finds itself in the content of his word. God's word is powerful because of its content. Now, Paul doesn't directly speak about what the content of God's word is. He basically just says the effects of God's word, the content of God's word. And what are the effects to the contents of God's word? Well, he tells us it teaches, it rebukes, it cautions, it corrects, it trains in righteousness. Now, when you hear these words, let's be honest, it does not sound very attractive, right? It does not sound very appealing that the word of God is there to train you, to rebuke you, to correct you. Are you naturally gravitating towards something like that? It's kind of like being attracted to going to boot camp or something, right? Or going on to some crazy exercise regimen where you have to get up at 3 a.m. and then work out till you vomit and just eat a very small reduced diet. Like why in the world would you want to resort yourself to that kind of difficulty and that kind of trouble? And yet Paul is not being accidental when he puts these words together. Because these words all have something in common, and you see this commonality most poignantly in the book of Proverbs, okay? Because when you look at how the book of Proverbs is written and you find these same words in there, they're all in the context of what? A parent's loving responsibility to their child. For example, Proverbs 22 says, train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Proverbs 1, listen, my son, to your father's instructions and do not forsake your mother's teaching. There will be a garland of grace for your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Proverbs 13, a wise son heeds his father's instructions, but a mocker does not listen to rebuke. You put all this together, you can easily understand what the content of God's word is. It's God's protecting, promising, and trustworthy love for us. So, for example, just like a father's love, God's word can sometimes be stern and to the point, but it's always true. Just like a mother's love, God's word can be uh, encouraging and kind and nurturing, therefore making it always trustworthy. Just like a father and mother's love, God's word is filled with such wisdom to where it tries to warn us of the dangerous consequences of living like a fool. In other words, the content of God's word is his love for us, his wise, gracious, kind, and undying love for us. And this is why, according to Paul, the Bible is so powerful because there is nothing more powerful, more transforming, more hope-inducing than the power of God's love. Now, for those of you who grew up going to church, attending Sunday school, no doubt you've heard this over and over, right? Your pastors told you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, to the point where it may even be so nauseating and so cliche to where it goes in one ear and out the other, and it doesn't change you. This is why, by the way, I'm convinced that for many of you, because you are so, so numb and so callous to the significance of God's amazing love that the Bible is probably, quite frankly, very boring to you and therefore very irrelevant, right? But Paul tries to show us how much we truly and desperately need the love of God and therefore why we truly desperately need the word of God. Listen to how he describes the word of God in verse 16. What does he say? He says, all scripture is what? God breathed. God breathed. 
Now, this is a very important phrase to notice because you come across it for the very first time in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 7, can we have Genesis 2 up there? Listen to what it says. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became what? A living being. Here we see the first instance of God breathing into something, and who does he breathe into? He breathes into man. By the way, he doesn't breathe into any other creature like this, but to man. And as a result of receiving this breath of life, what is man now capable of doing? He's able to walk with God. He's able to fellowship with God. He's able to obey God. He's able to be in fellowship and communion with God. And the connection to this and to 2 Timothy is very intentional for Paul because Paul is trying to teach us something very, very profound. And that's basically this. When God communicates his love for you as you study the scriptures, it's like God breathing life into you. He's breathing the breath of life into your body in such a way that you're able to live life the way God intended, which conversely means if you are depriving yourself of God's love by depriving yourself of the reading and studying of God's word, you know what that's like? It's like you're spiritually suffocating yourself. You're depriving yourself breath, air to breathe in, or perhaps more specifically or more correctly, it's kind of like you are spiritually drowning. Have any of you guys in here experienced drowning or seen someone drowning? It's a very horrific thing to see, right? And lifeguards tell us, look, if you see someone drowning, do not, do not go in by yourself with your bare hands trying to rescue that person. Always, always go in with some flotation device, a stick, a rope. Do not go near a person who is in the midst of drowning. Why? Because the mindset of a drowning person, someone who is deprived of air, is in primal instinct survival mode. Where the only thing they're thinking of is me, 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 right? It doesn't matter if the rescuer is that person's mother, best friend, their own child. When someone is in such a situation where they don't have the breath of life in their life and they're just panicking, they're going to do whatever they can, even harming someone who they deeply love because they're so consumed with self. And that is the same kind of mindset that develops in a person when they deprive themselves of the word of God and hence the love of God. They become so consumed with self, they become the very people Paul speaks of in verse 2 to 4. People who become lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, brutal, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, treacherous, all because they're spiritually drowning. They have no air. In other words, when people are not being enveloped by the love of God, By accessing it through the word of God, they develop a mindset of every man for himself, every woman for herself. And once you have a world filled with people with that kind of mindset, you're not too far off from that Hollywood vision of a post-apocalyptic world that you see in the book of Eli. Now, if you're here investigating Christianity and you're not a Christian, you're hearing this and you're like, you know, pastor... Not to be offensive, but I honestly feel like you're being very narrow-minded. I feel like you're being offensive, Pastor. How can you dare say that this love, whether you want to call it the love of God, the love of the 